Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you're listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. Well, today's sermon I hope you will find to be an interesting one. It certainly is one that took me by surprise as I was reading our scripture passage for today of uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, and reading about uh, new wine going into old wineskins and patching up old garments. I had never thought of it this way before, and so I'm excited and a little nervous to mention this to you, and I'm hoping that it will bless you today. Philip Yancey recounts about reading and learning about the roads in Alaska, and he says this, I read somewhere that in the early days of the Alaska Highway, tractor-trailer trucks would make deep ruts into the gravel as they carried construction equipment to the boom towns up north. Someone posted this sign at the beginning of the road, Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. Hmm. Do you ever feel like you've been stuck in a rut or stuck in a rut for 200 miles? Does life seem stale to you? Does it feel like the day after day, week after week, maybe even year after year, you've been living the same life, doing the same stuff, maybe going nowhere, or maybe not getting to the results that you've wanted, and wondering what the point of it all is? Well, God has a solution for this, and He knows that every person gets stuck in life. We certainly get stuck with sin. But he also knows even the best of us get stuck. And getting unstuck means letting Jesus do something new in you. And that's the challenge today. Will you let Jesus in and do something new in you? Something radical. It would mean disrupting the old, getting rid of things you're familiar with, changing what you've always done, and surrendering to Christ. So today we're going to read a scripture text from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It's short, but it's a story about everyone being stuck and Jesus offering new and joyous life. The problem is, most of us don't want to let go of the old. As frustrated as we may be with life, we might feel stuck. It's ours. It's mine. I get to own it. I get to be in charge. You get to be in charge. And we don't like giving up that control to let Jesus do something new. Jesus offers a different way and a warning for those of us who will try to hang on to the old and grab onto the new life at the same time that Jesus offers. So to experience the joyous life that you must Let me say that again. To experience the joyous life, you must relinquish your old ways and let Jesus make you new. It takes both. You can't keep the old and grab the new. You have to let go of the old and let Jesus do something new. So let's read the text from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came to Jesus and asked him, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with him. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. 
No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. That's our text. I know it's short, but there's actually a lot going on here. Ah, now, there are those phrases that we hear. No one fills old wineskins with new wine or sews a new patch on an old garment. No one did this because doing so, the new that they added would destroy the old. But this is exactly what everyone in Israel was trying to do. They're trying to add new into their old traditions. And you know what? Jesus lets them do it. I need you to hear this. He says, oh, nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. Nobody puts a new cloth, a new patch on an old garment to try to repair it. But that's what Israel's doing. And I want to point that out to you today. And Jesus lets them do it. In fact, he has to let them do it to accomplish his mission. Do you know what happens when you add old or new to the old? When you put new wine into the wineskins, the wineskins burst. When you put a new patch on the old garment, the old garment tears when the new patch shrinks. That's what Israel is wanting to have happen, or at least they don't realize it's going to happen, but that's what they do, and Jesus lets them. Let's dig into the text a little bit. There's fasting, there's feasting, there's wineskins, there's fixing holes, there's all kinds of things going on. Parties are supposed to be joyful. Think of young parents celebrating the birthday of their toddler or grandparents spoiling a grandchild. There's a certain age where a child doesn't even really know what's happening at parties. They just know it's something exciting is going on and they're enjoying it. They know that they're opening presents, but for the most part, the parents and the relatives are more excited than the little child. Grandparents spend time picking out the perfect gift only to have their grandchild be more excited with playing with the box that the toy came in. But everybody realized the party is fun. There's joy to be found there in that moment. And we would never abide someone saying, oh, just get a bunch of empty boxes. Don't buy toys. We go, no, it's a party for our loved one. We care about them. It's a celebration. Yeah, that sour person might be realistic, but it's a celebration to be enjoyed. And Jesus and his disciples, they're at a party. And he's being questioned by some outsider saying, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus says, we're partying. We're supposed to have fun. Fasting is a solemn exercise. The party is supposed to be about joy. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us who these outsiders are. They're wet blankets saying, why aren't you fasting instead of partying? Uh, But it doesn't tell us who they are. But they're trying to figure out if Jesus and his disciples are serious about God. You need to hear this. They see that John the Baptist's disciples are serious about God because they're fasting. And they see the Pharisees are serious about God because they're fasting. And so they look at Jesus and his disciples and they're essentially saying, well, if you're not fasting, then you're not serious about God. Why aren't you serious is what they're asking. You see, fasting was a practice among the Jewish people where they abstained from eating and sometimes drinking water. They may, they're, usually they would drink water, but sometimes fasting meant they just abstained from all food and water and drink. Uh, 
It's a practice that they held, but interestingly enough, they fasted much more than God actually required. In the Old Testament, originally, God only required one day a year for fasting, which was the Day of Atonement. Uh, they, the Jewish people were to practice fasting uh, to mark the day. But then later, the Jewish people practiced more fasting occasions as well. In fact, Zechariah 8.19 tells us about this. It tells us that the Israelites added more fasts, and God confirmed it when they added more fasts, that he, he condoned this. And so, Zechariah 8.19 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth and fifth and seventh and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So, God's actually telling them, your fasts, which are solemn, are going to become joyful when the Messiah shows up. Esther 9.31 talks about another fast that was added. This one doesn't say that God declared it, but it says that the Israelites added it, just like they added the ones in Zechariah, but God condoned those ones. Here in Esther 9.31, we read, um, To the established... To be established these days of Purim at the end of their designated time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. So, it's another text that says the Jewish people were fasting. So, they added fasts, but God only prescribed one. And they added their fasts to show they were serious about God. Now, the Pharisees added even more fasting. They would fast two days a week. You can even read about it. It's implied there in Luke 18, verse 12, where you have a Pharisee talking and he says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get to show his devotion to God. So the Pharisees added more fasting and the Jewish people added all kinds of fasts, but they were to be solemn, sad, uh, often very serious things, not a celebration. For the most part, fasting was a personal action done in some sort of serious and somber way. You fasted when you were grieving the loss of a loved one. You fasted to ward off demons. You fasted to show your humility. You fasted to receive God's blessing. You fasted to atone for sins. You fasted to avert some sort of calamity upon the nation. Fasting was usually an act of devotion to earn something from God. You showed your seriousness to God by fasting. The problem is, is you have to ask, ask yourself the question, who are you showing how serious you are? And what are you showing them? See, fasting became about showing other people how serious you were about God, not showing God how serious you are about Him. And so... Maybe you think like this sometimes, or you talk like this, but essentially fasting became, I'm good with God because I do religious stuff. But that doesn't necessarily make us good with God. It just means we practice religious stuff. If you don't believe me about this attitude about fasting, well, Jesus even taught against this mentality of fasting so that others would be impressed with your relationship with God. See, Matthew 6 16 through 18 tell us this. Jesus is teaching, he says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is 
unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is basically saying, don't show off to others that you're devoted to God, just show God. But how often do we want to show others or we're not impressed with our own actions? I I can't even show myself that I'm devoted to God. Don't believe me? Still? Well, the very people who are asking Jesus why his disciples were not fasting, guess what they're doing? They're looking at the actions of the disciples and they're judging the disciples on how devoted to God they are. They're doing the very thing that Jesus has taught against doing. These outsiders are looking at the outward actions of the disciples and saying, you know what? I don't think they take God very seriously, but that's not how it worked. And you need to understand this. God sees things differently than we do. We always try to fret and fuss and look at our behaviors and our actions and say, you know, people are going to look at me and and judge me. <sighs> yeah, we might. But God looks at something different. 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us about how God looks at us. It says this, The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. These observers, they're upset because Jesus and the disciples do not look outwardly like they're serious about God, but they are more serious than anyone can know. And Jesus then lets them know about this. He keys them in and he reveals that he's actually deadly serious about God, more serious than any Israelite is in Israel at this moment. And he tells them God is is working in ways that they are not even aware of yet. How can the wedding party fast while the bridegroom is present? That's what Jesus asks. So he knows that weddings are not sad parties. They're celebrations. They are new beginnings, a beginning of a new family, a new relationship. It's a fresh start. It's something amazing that's happening in the life of these two people getting married. And you know what Jesus is doing? He is initiating a new family, a new beginning with God for God's people. Jesus isn't just saying, go party and have fun with God. He's telling these questioners exactly who he is by talking about a wedding party. I know that might seem strange, but this is what he's doing and everybody would have realized it. He's saying he is the bridegroom. He's saying he is the Messiah. Israel would have been looking for the Messiah, the bridegroom Messiah, because they would have been thinking of Isaiah 61 verse 10, where it says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. They looked for the Messiah to come like a bridegroom. And Jesus is saying, you know, they're judging him. Are, are you serious about God? And he says, you know, we're at a wedding celebration and you don't, you got to be joyous at that. He's basically saying, I am the Messiah. But he doesn't just stop at saying he's the Messiah by pointing out this wedding moment, this new beginning with God. He then goes so far as to say, you know, I'm the Messiah and you're going to kill me. Now, you don't read the words in Matthew and Mark 2 that says that, he's, that they're going to kill Jesus, but he does say it. See, the disciples of John, and they're mentioned in this text of Mark 2, the disciples of John are fasting because they're mourning, and they're mourning because John the Baptist has been taken from them. 
Herod's going to kill John. And then Jesus tells the crowd that his disciples too will fast when the bridegroom is no longer with him, with them. He's saying there's going to be a time that the bridegroom's going to be taken. He's going to be taken too, killed too. He's hinting at the cross, though nobody realizes it yet. But for now, they're to be filled with joy. They are in the presence of God. They're in the presence of forgiveness itself. They're experiencing the beginning of the new covenant. It's a joyous celebration time. And then Jesus tells his questioners why they're going to kill him. He tells them who he is. He tells them that they're going to kill him. And then he tells them why they're going to kill him. They're going to try to force Jesus into their expectations. And when they try to force them into their old, tired expectations, it's going to be incompatible. It's going to result in his death and the destruction of their old ways of doing things. Jesus tells them that he's going to blow up and tear apart these expectations they have, their old traditions, their religious system. How do I know this? How can I say this? I know it seems like a big claim, but I think it's there. I know it's there. Jesus tells two simple parables that we often hear and go, yeah, okay, I get it. New wine, old wine skins, not good for it. New patch on an old garment, okay, not good for it. But how often do we really think about what those parables mean? A worn garment is stretched and it's already shrunk in the wash. It's now more or less the size it wants to be. You ever buy a new outfit? You love how it fits, and then comes the day you wash it, and you put it on again, and it doesn't fit the way it did before. Have you ever had that happen? I've had that happen to me. They shrink when we wash them. And that's what Jesus is kind of wanting us to think about. A garment that you have well-loved, served you well, it's old, it's it's well worn and because it's well worn and washed many times it's shrunk and it's just it's the size it's going to be has no more stretch in it if you put a new patch that has not shrunk yet and you wash that new patch it will shrink and it will tear the old cloth that doesn't have any more stretch left in it i think that makes sense to us i think we can get that picture then Jesus goes on to talk about wine and wineskins. See, wineskins are made of leather, and new leather will stretch. It'll stretch a lot. This is important, because when you put new wine into a wineskin, it will continue to ferment, and as it ferments, it will release gas, and as it releases gas, the wineskins need to stretch and puff up to make room. So if you take an old wine skin that is already fully stretched and you fill it with new wine, that wine will release the gas. It will try to stretch the the wine skin, but the wine skin is already tired. It has no more stretch in it, and so it will be it will burst. Jesus is telling us he is that new patch. He is the new wine. Everyone in Israel is confused by Jesus as he's walking around in the Gospels. Every time he runs into a teacher of the law or the crowd, they're just shocked by him. They can't figure out why he doesn't fit all the things they already understand about God or how they practice the Old Testament, God's Word. God's Word doesn't change, but they've warped how they practice God's Word. They're all confused by Jesus. They can't figure out why he doesn't fit 
fit in. And they're going to try to force him to fit in this old way that they've done for hundreds of years that is now tired and stretched and has no more given it. Jesus tears apart the system and he does something new. The Pharisees' way of following God doesn't work. John's disciples, they got a glimpse of something new, but their way doesn't work either. And you know what? This whole world has been trying to live life well, and they're stuck. Sometimes it's people trying to find the love of God, God's love, and they, they, they're looking for meaning. They're looking for joy. They're looking for real life. They're trying to find something, but they don't have Christ. They don't have Jesus. And so nothing works. We're old, tired. The system just doesn't work anymore. Jesus dismantles the old system. He doesn't dismantle God's word. He doesn't discard the Old Testament. He discards our efforts to fulfill it. We can't fulfill it. He is the one who fulfills the law. We try to show our devotion. Israel tried to show offer sacrifices for atonement, and it never worked. There's all kinds of things that we've tried to do under our own power. It never works. Jesus is the one who fulfills. He's the new wine. He's that new patch on the garment. How do I know this? Think about when we celebrate communion as a church. I always read 1 Corinthians 11.25. We're celebrating Jesus, the new wine. And he says there in 1 Corinthians 11.25, In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is telling him, This cup of wine, this is my blood. It's new wine a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Picture Jesus on the cross now. He's dying. He's bleeding. As he's shedding his blood on the cross, picture that blood as new wine flowing down into the old wineskins of religious devotion. Old outward actions to show how spiritual we are won't cut it anymore. They can't hold the new wine. Those old ways are going to be cast aside because Jesus, the new wine, is going to burst the old wine skins. He's going to give, he's going to do something new. I love that image. But what about Jesus being the patch that tears a hole in a garment? Ah. <sighs> The teachers of the law turn Jesus into that patch, that new patch on an old garment. They do this when they put him on the cross. Just like he sheds his blood on the cross and his new wine flowing into old wineskins. When they put him on the cross, they make him into that patch on the garment. So what does Jesus say a new patch will do when you put it on an old garment? It tears the whole garment, ruins it, is what he says. Remember what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? And Mark, same gospel, Mark chapter 15, verse 37 through 39, we hear Jesus' words, his last bit when he's on the cross. You know, actually, Mark doesn't tell us the words. It reads like this. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was a son of God. Jesus, the new patch, tears the old garment. 
Jesus in his death tears the curtain in the temple. The curtain was the dividing wall between the people and God. Only the high priest could go behind that curtain once a year on the day of atonement to sprinkle blood to atone for everyone's sins. Jesus did that. No more action required. He did it on the cross. There's no more dividing wall, or rather we celebrate the the dividing wall because we know that dividing wall. It's Jesus, and we're invited in because Jesus, he's the patch on the curtain, and he is the curtain. I know it might be a little hard to follow, but Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 tells us this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body. Yeah. They turn Jesus into the patch on the old garment, which just happens to be the curtain in the temple. And they, by putting him into it, make him the curtain. We now have confidence to enter the most holy place because Jesus is the curtain and he tore it in half and said, hey, come on in. Jesus is the new wine. He is the new patch. Israel, the teachers of the law, they insist on filling old wineskins and patching old garments, and Jesus lets them do it. He initiates the new covenant, the new family of God. The party has begun, and you are invited to enjoy. So then we need to ask, what's being asked of us? Today I would challenge you, stop trying to fill old wineskins with new wine. Stop trying to live your old life with Jesus just stuffed in as an additive. If you're stuck in life, if you feel no joy, if you are stagnant in your faith, you just might be guilty of trying to add Jesus to old wineskins. At some point, you have to let go. You have to give Jesus true control and true lordship over your life. But too many of us, we want Jesus and we want our old selves. We want Jesus, and we want our old ways of doing things. We want Jesus, and we want to still be in charge of deciding if we are good or bad. We want Jesus, and we want to be king ourselves. We can't do that. We have to surrender, and we have to let Jesus do something new in our lives. At some point, you have to give him permission to do that new thing. I want to read several scriptures to you here. Isaiah 43, 19 says this, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God wants to do a new thing in you. He wants to bring life into a desert of your existence. Will you let him do that? Romans 6, verse 4 says this, We were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that at just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He didn't just say a life made better or a life now good. He said a new life. Don't try to live an old life that's now better or better behaved. Let Jesus give you new life. Romans 7, 6 says this, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we now serve the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Are you letting the Spirit lead your life now? That's the new way. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. To let Jesus do something new, we have to let go of the old. So stop trying to stuff Jesus into old wineskins, meaning that you're refusing to let go of your old self. But maybe, if you'll just permit me for a moment, maybe you're really stuck and you're sick of who you are. You're sick of some of the things you're ashamed of in your life. Maybe you do need to invite him into your old wineskin. Now, maybe you don't want to be called an old wineskin. I'm not sure I'd want to be called that. But Jesus does say the new wine will burst the old. And if the old is burst, I think there's room for new. So maybe you do need to invite Jesus in. Let him fill the old. Let him explode it. And then let him give you new life, a new spirit, make you a new creation. The key is letting him, Jesus, be the one who's in charge. Letting him work on your heart. Not you trying to tell Jesus what to do and just think that we're going to do what we think is best. But we got to really let him be in charge. Uh, One last illustration may maybe help us think about how dangerous living in the old can be. Because we can get stuck. In his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Chuck DeGroat makes an important connection between shame and narcissism by looking at the myth of Narcissus. The myth of Narcissus tells the story well. While often told as a tale of excessive self-love, it is precisely self-love that Narcissus was lacking. It's a story of being stuck, immobilized, fixed in a death dance. In his youth, he ran free, hunting in the forest, loved and desired by women, but he would not let one touch his heart. He would not let anyone touch his heart. This is the wound of shame. One who is ashamed cannot connect and cannot become vulnerable. He is immovable and untouchable. Narcissus finds himself thirsty one day and makes his way to a clear pool for a drink. In the water, he sees his reflection, an image so striking that he reaches out into an embrace to embrace it. But the image is lost when the water is disrupted by the ripples, and it is with each future effort that it's disrupted again. It leaves Narcissus all the more desperate. He's immobilized before the pool. He pines for the image that will never return. It will never return his love and eventually succumbs to the neglect. He eventually succumbs to the neglect of his basic needs. Narcissus is trapped in a vicious narcissistic feedback loop. The name Narcissus comes from the Greek narc, which means numbness, a kind of stupor. It is the sting of addiction that Narcissus experiences, addicted to his old self. He's afraid to let something new happen. And I think sometimes that happens to us. If you're stuck in life, if you're numb in life, let Jesus do something new in you. One final scripture, Revelation 21.5. He who was seated on the throne said this, See, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When Jesus makes all things new at the end of the time, will you be ready? Or will you still be trying to fill old wineskins and patch old garments? Let Jesus work on you now. Let us pray. Lord, too often we try to live as the ones who are in charge. We try to 
put new life into old wineskins and patch up our old lives to try to fix them up. We want to keep the old garments. We love them too much. Help us to let Jesus do something new in us. Lord, I pray for the person hearing this right now. I hope they can see Jesus in a new light as the one who releases us, sets us free from the old places where we are stuck, old sin that we're stuck in, that a person hearing this would invite Jesus in and let him do something new in their lives today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.